Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. So, shalom. All right, we're all speaking Hebrew, so <laughs> off to a good start. Uh, so, um, as Pastor mentioned, uh, I'm with Chosen People Ministries. My name is Robert Walter, and uh, we are a ministry that focuses on bringing the gospel to the Jewish people. And uh, me, I'm not Jewish myself. I'm uh, just a, a typical European mutt, so Irish, Italian, German, Lithuanian, Polish, just all, you know, always at war with myself. Um, <laughs> Uh, but the Lord really laid this burden on my heart to bring the gospel to the Jewish people, and uh, that's what I do. So uh, I serve with Chosen People Ministries. A little bit about our ministry. We began in 1894 when a Hungarian Orthodox Jewish rabbi emigrated from Hungary, came to the United States, and he was walking on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, and he walked by a Reformed church that had a sign in Yiddish. And Yiddish is like a German-Hebrew slang that was the predominant language in the Eastern European Jewish world uh, in the 19th and early 20th century. So anyway, it was his heart language. So he went inside this church and he heard the gospel being proclaimed in Yiddish. And he was blown away. Uh, and uh, a few days later, he came to believe that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. Uh, his life was changed and transformed. And, uh, and uh, then he, um, uh, he was discipled and he was trained and he um, began our ministry in 1894 in New York. Uh, now we're in 21 different countries uh, around the world, uh, including Brooklyn, which is, which is where I live uh, and serve. Uh, so I'm from Jersey originally. So, yeah. You may be wondering what exit. And uh, I'll tell you, 14A, okay? So that's Bayonne, yeah, all right, let's go. Uh, grew up in Bayonne, and uh, you could smell it from here, actually. And uh, that's a joke, yeah. Um, and I, I got saved when I was 19 years old, and I moved down to West Palm Beach, Florida, because I had to get away from friends and influences in Jersey. Uh, so I, while I was down there in, in West Palm Beach, uh, that's where the Lord really began to grow me and uh, disciple me, and I got connected with Jewish believers in Jesus. And it, uh, it was really interesting. I'd been a believer for about two or three years, sort of bounced around different churches, uh, because when I got saved, it was very radical. Uh, I wasn't in a church. No one led me to the Lord. It was just a moment of desperation where I cried out to God. I said, if you're real, show me. And within moments of praying that prayer, I was just flooded by the Holy Spirit. And all I knew was that Jesus answered me. That was it. Uh, so I didn't know where to go. I didn't know where to go as an early believer. But one thing that God really used to stabilize me during my early walk was the radio ministry of Calvary Chapel and, uh, and Moody. So I would listen to these half-hour sermons on the radio and just soak it in. And it was just so refreshing and important. Uh, so I was in West Palm Beach uh, and I was at First Baptist of West Palm Beach, and I meet a young man who starts sharing with me some of the Jewish nuggets from the New Testament. And I said, where are you getting that? And he said, oh, you've got to come, uh, you come to this Bible study. So I went to this Bible study, and it was being taught by a Chosen People Ministries missionary. His name was Ben Alpert, a uh, Jewish believer, great Bible teacher. And after one study, I was just blown away. I was hooked. I was like, this is incredible. Uh, just studying more about the Jewish, historic, religious, cultural backgrounds of the New Testament. Uh, really, really was, uh, was very important for me. So two days later, after I went to this Bible study for the first time, our little group of friends, we were in a bookstore, and we meet a young Orthodox Jewish man who was about our age, early 20s. He was wearing a kippah, right, a yarmulke. He had the, uh, the white fringes called tzitzit. And, uh, and a big Star of David necklace. Uh, so one of the young ladies in our group starts talking with him, and it turns out that he had a lot of questions about the Messiah. Like the Lord was already working on his heart. 
He was taking these questions that he had and going to his rabbi and not getting really sufficient answers. Uh, one of the questions he had was, who is God talking to in Genesis 1 when he says, let us make man in our image? Uh, and it, it just it bothered him. Like, who's he talking to? So again, his rabbi didn't give him sufficient answers. So we invited him to come down to a Friday night fellowship that Chosen People Ministries was hosting in Boca Raton in uh, Florida. Okay, Boca is very Jewish, very Jewish down there. Uh, so he came, right? And we have, uh, there's music, there's worship, there's a teaching, and then there's what was, is very important, schmoozing, okay? <laughs> Where everybody's sitting down after the service, drinking coffee, eating pastries, and uh, I just watched and listened as uh, Ben, the chosen people staff member, got, got into a conversation with Jonathan. He was my young Jewish Orthodox new friend. So for 20 minutes, they're going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And every question that Jonathan had, Ben had the answer, and he was pointing him to Jesus. 20 minutes go by, the room got quiet, and the room, it, it felt heavy. And you could see the look on Jonathan's face. He looked scared. So Ben looks at him eye to eye, and he says, you know it's him, don't you? And Jonathan's eyes welled up with tears. Man, sorry. And uh, he just nodded his head, and he began to weep. And in that moment, as he was realizing and acknowledging and believing that Jesus is the Messiah that he's been praying for, that his family's been praying for, that his people have been praying for, uh, it, was, it was phenomenal. And in that moment, God lit a fire in my heart. Like I knew right then and there that God was calling me to be a part of that, to be a part of Jewish people being presented the gospel and responding to the gospel. So uh, from there, uh, Ben took me under his wing, began to disciple me even more. I had opportunities to go on mission trips with Chosen People Ministries back in New York, in Israel, uh, and of course getting involved in South Florida. Uh, and then uh, a few years later, came on staff with Chosen People and moved up to Brooklyn. Uh, uh, usually the reverse, right? You go from Brooklyn to Florida, but you know, sometimes you go against the stream. Uh, so we've been, my wife and I, my wife is Joanna, and uh, we have two children. I used to be able to say, to say that they were small children, but uh, our daughter is 15. She's like, oh my goodness, how did this happen? Uh, and no, I wasn't 12 when we had her. No. <laughs> I'm just kidding, no. Uh, yeah, she's 15, and my son just turned 12. So uh, we live there in Brooklyn, uh, and we've been in Brooklyn now uh, for close to 15 years, uh, serving there with chosen people. And our mission statement at Chosen People Ministries is worded like this. We exist to pray for, evangelize, disciple, and serve the Jewish people and to help others do the same. And where we live in Brooklyn, I don't know if you're aware of this, there are a few Jewish people. Yeah, that's a joke too. Uh, New York City, outside of the land of Israel, is the largest Jewish community in the world. Uh, there are close to 2 million Jewish people that live uh, in, in New York, in the New York metropolitan area. Uh, and in Brooklyn alone, we have close to three-quarter million Jewish people. And it's a very diverse community. Uh, the Jewish community is very diverse. There's no, sometimes people will ask, hey, what do the Jewish people believe about heaven? Uh, and there's, there's no one answer to that because the Jewish community is not monolithic. Uh, and we, we feel that even in our own neighborhood. Uh, if you walk outside the building, uh, outside the door of our ministry center there in Brooklyn, and you turn right, uh, it's very Russian. Uh, very Many Russian-speaking Jewish people from the former Soviet Union, from Ukraine, from Uzbekistan, from Mother Russia, right? And um, uh, very, very uh, unique cultural expressions of their Jewishness. Usually not so religious, uh, because they grew up under communism, where belief in God was outlawed, uh, and, and, uh, but generally sort of open to the gospel. And then if you walk out the door and you turn left, you go to a very orthodox, religious Jewish neighborhood. And even in the religious Jewish neighborhood, there's a lot of diversity. You have a huge Syrian uh, orthodox Jewish community, a huge Ashkenazi Jewish community, Eastern European Jewish people. You have Hasidic, you have uh, Litvish, you have Yeshivish, okay? All these different uh, categories and expressions of, uh, of the Jewish world. So that's where we live, 
and that's where we serve. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a privilege and an honor uh, to come and share with you this morning because I'm sure you're aware, Jersey has a lot of Jewish people, right? Uh, a lot of Jewish people in Jersey. Um, and, uh, and I was even talking with pastor before the service and I heard, you know, he was just, he said a few weeks ago, there was a few Jewish people, Jewish uh, people uh, here during a, a sermon that he gave on Genesis 49. And uh, it's, it's very exciting, very encouraging. So we want to be your resource for uh, reaching the Jewish people. Now, one of the privileges, again, that we have in our ministry is we are able to come and visit our brothers and sisters in different churches around the country, around the world, and share our burden, uh, share our vision for bringing the gospel to the Jewish people, uh, and also to teach a bit about the Jewish foundations of our faith, right? The Jewish backgrounds of our faith in Jesus. Uh, Because again, when we stop and step back and think about it, what other foundation is there to Christianity, right? Where else did it come from? It came from Judaism. Jesus is Jewish. All of his disciples were Jewish, and the New Testament is a very Jewish book. So again, we like to come and share about these uh, Jewish backgrounds, and one of the ways we do that is by uh, making the connections uh, between the, uh, the feasts of the Lord, okay, the holidays. So if you have your Bible, Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 23. Okay, Leviticus 23. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Leviticus. That's a joke as well, yeah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Now, Leviticus uh, 23 uh, is is a very important chapter. Okay, and we, we do have it. We have a PowerPoint and... Uh, there's lots of information we'll, we'll go through uh, and talk about these things. But Leviticus 23. I have really, over the years, come to love the book of Leviticus, right? I love it. I love it. There's, there's so much that we can learn and glean when we come to the book of Leviticus. Uh, there's, there's really two big things uh, that are part of the message of Leviticus, right? And, and I know, I understand that uh, it's... it's, uh, it's it's tough sometimes to read through Leviticus. It's like trudging through mud, right? Because it's so tedious and the details and, you know, this kind of animal and the priest has to wear this and then he has to do this, right? I, I, I get it, right? But the, there are two very strong truths that are communicated through Leviticus. Number one, God is holy. God is holy. He is set apart. There is none like him. Right? And he is holy. This is just clearly on the pages of the book of Leviticus. And then the second truth, we are not. We fall short of the holiness, of the glory of God. We need him. We, we desperately need him to uh, intercede on our behalf so that we could be restored back into a right relationship and fellowship with him. We cannot do it on our own. All of this is on the pages of Leviticus. And in chapter 23 in particular, what we have, the entire chapter, is devoted to these appointments, these appointed times of God. All right? Uh, So if we look on the first slide, here we go. Okay, so this is Leviticus 23, a chapter that is in the heart of the Torah. All right, the Torah is the first five books of Moses. And it outlines the annual appointed times for Israel. Uh, this is, it's God's calendar. And when we look, and, and we're going to go through, we're going to try our best to get through all of them. Uh, but honestly, I doubt that we will. Sorry, Pastor. Uh, but as we go through, what we're going to see is that each one has a, an agricultural significance. So much of what uh, these, appointment, these appointments, these appointed times revolve around, uh, it emphasizes the agriculture in Israel. There's a, a particular harvest that comes up, or the, uh, as the seasons change, these holidays will serve as like mile markers in, uh, in the agricultural cycle in the land of Israel. Okay, so they have that sort of uh, aspect to them, but they also have prophetic significance. Because God's overarching plan for us, God's overarching plan for creation is outlined, is laid out in these appointed times. 
Each and every one of them is like a building block that gives us more and more information about how God's plan for Israel and the world is unfolding in, in real time and space. Okay, so let's begin by reading uh, Leviticus 23, verses 1 and 2. This is what it says. The Lord spoke again to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, The Lord's appointed times which you shall proclaim as holy convocations, these are my appointed times. So who do they belong to? They belong to God, right? These are God's appointed times. They come from the mind and heart of God himself, the creator of all things. What he did is he gave them to Israel. He entrusted Israel with these appointed times, with these appointments. Now, when we keep reading, uh, we learn that these appointed times, these holidays, are split up into two seasons, the spring and the fall, okay, the spring and the fall feasts. So in the spring, we have Passover and unleavened bread, we have the Feast of Firstfruits, and we have what's called Pentecost in English, or in the Hebrew, it's called Shavuot, Shavuot, okay? Those are the spring feasts. And then in the fall, we have Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Tabernacles, or Sukkot. And as you could see from the chart here, this is a breakdown of the particular verses, uh, but also, you know, the spring and the fall, and on top of that, the prophetic significance and how it lines up with the ministry of Jesus. Because not only is, the, is God's overarching plan for all creation laid out in these appointed times, uh, but we see it broken up in, in the spring and in the fall, and it lines up with the ministry of Jesus during the first coming and the ministry of Jesus during the second coming. All right, and we'll, we'll talk about that as we go through. But what we find, especially in the spring, as they've been fulfilled already, we see that during the, the life and death and burial and resurrection and the ministry of Jesus, the first time he came, some major, major events took place on these appointed times, okay? On the exact days, some major, major stuff happened, all right? So let, let's, uh, let's look uh, at the first of these spring feasts, which is the Passover. So Leviticus 23 Verses 4 and 5. This is what it says. These are the appointed times of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. Now, when we read these passages, again, we're coming to the, uh, the very first of these appointed times. And it is the Passover. Now, what is the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word Passover? Egypt. What else? Blood on the doorposts, right? Anything else? Unleavened bread. Yeah, this is good, right? We think about Egypt. We think about the blood on the doorposts. We think about unleavened bread. We think about Moses. We think about Charlton Heston, right? That's a joke too, yeah, but... Uh, yeah, usually that's where our minds go, right? And with good reason, because that is where the Passover was instituted. That's where Passover became a thing, right? So it, it's given here in Leviticus 23 as part of the annual cycle of celebration, but it, it remembers, it marks a, a monumental occasion in Israel's history. And when we look at what unfolded at that first Passover in Egypt, what we see is God giving us the blueprint the template for what he would eventually accomplish in and through the first coming of his son Jesus. There are many parallels that can be drawn between the Passover in Egypt and what Jesus has done for us. All right, what do we find in Egypt? We find God's chosen people in slavery and in bondage, right? They cry out to God, God hears their prayer, God responds to their prayer by sending a deliverer to them in Moses. Moses goes to the Pharaoh, and he says to the Pharaoh, the Lord says, let my people go. And what did the Pharaoh say in response? He said no, right? Before he said no, though, he actually asked a question. He said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? And that was like the epitome of pride and arrogance on the part of the Pharaoh. He was questioning the identity 
and the power and the authority of the one true and living God. And what God did from that moment forward is he began to answer Pharaoh's question. And he did so by pouring out the ten plagues upon the Egyptians. And with each one of those ten plagues, God demonstrates his power, his authority. And, and, and what's interesting about it is when you look at the specific plagues, they line up a, a, as judgments upon the false gods that the Egyptians were worshiping. So every one of those plagues was a judgment on a, on a specific false god. So when the river turned to blood, it was God showing that he's more powerful than the river, which the people worshipped the river. When there was complete darkness over the land, right? it was God showing and demonstrating that he is more powerful than the sun. And then we come to the tenth and final plague, which was what? The death of the firstborn. And that is where Passover comes in. Because what does God do? He tells Moses to tell the children of Israel that they are to take a one-year-old male lamb into their home on the tenth day of the first month. And then for five days, on the tenth, eleventh, twelfth, thirteenth, and fourteenth, they would examine that lamb. They would look for a defect. It had to be perfect. It had to be spotless. So they would examine that lamb, and then when the time came, uh, if it was indeed spotless, they would slay that lamb, take its blood in a basin, take hyssop like a paintbrush, dip it into the blood, and then apply the blood of the lamb to the lintel and the two doorposts of the house. And by doing that, when the plague came, when judgment came that night, if they had the blood of the lamb applied to their homes, they would be what? Passed over, right? Well, another way to translate that word, pasach in Hebrew uh, it, it, in its verbal form, it's not just Passover like he skipped that house. It means protect. They were protected from the judgment by the blood of the lamb, the perfect lamb. And, and another sort of interesting note about this is that when Israel applied the blood of the lamb to their house, it was an act of faith. It was an act of faith, right? They didn't know what was going to happen. They had to trust God. So by faith, they brought the lamb into the house. By faith, they examined it. By faith, they slayed the lamb. By faith, they applied the blood of the lamb to their doorposts. By faith, they were then redeemed and set free from slavery. All right? And, and the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 11, picks up on that. Hebrews 11.28 straight up says, Moses, by faith, kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood on the doorposts. And then even the crossing of the Red Sea, all, that was also by, by faith. So with, with this in mind, right, now we come to the New Testament and we begin to draw those straight lines from the events of the Passover to the New Testament. And what do we find? We find that right away, the New Testament authors, the, the gospel writers, present Jesus to us and, and frame his ministry in Passover terms, right? John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming toward him, what were the first words out of his mouth? Yeah, it's on the screen, right? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay? John understood who Jesus was. He knew that he was the Messiah. He knew that he was the son of David. He knew that he was the king but his first words in seeing Jesus as Jesus comes toward him to begin his earthly ministry, he doesn't use royal language. He uses sacrificial language. The Lamb of God. And then we think about uh, what day was it when Jesus died? What day was it when Jesus died? It's Good Friday, right? What day in the calendar year was it? It was Passover. Jesus died on Passover. Do we think that's a coincidence? No. God could have chosen any day in the calendar year to have his only begotten son become the one and only sacrifice that has ever had any true power to atone for our sins. He chose to do it on the Passover. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 5-7 uh, as he's talking about the sacrifice of Jesus, again, he uses Passover language. He says, for Christ or Messiah, our Passover also has been sacrificed. So for Paul, right, the, this, 
the source of so much good New Testament theology that we have on the pages of the, of the Scriptures. Paul understood that Jesus is our Passover lamb. He is that perfect, spotless lamb who was brought into the house, okay? The very same day, uh, the very same day, the 10th day of the first month, uh, when the lambs were being brought into the house, that is when Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And during those five days between his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and his death on the cross, what happened to Jesus during that time? He was examined, right? He, he would teach in the temple courts and he would teach with great wisdom and insight. And, and, um, and, and he was found to be unblemished. And then when the time came, when the Passover came, his blood was shed at the, at the, at the exact right time. And his blood was shed for what? for our forgiveness, for our deliverance, for our freedom from slavery. Slavery not to, to any man, right? Not to Egypt, not to a pharaoh, but slavery to sin, a far worse oppressor. We have been redeemed. We have been set free. Those, those shackles have been broken off. And the only way that the operative means that God has used to set us free and deliver us is the blood of the Lamb. It's the blood of Jesus. There is power in the blood of Jesus. There is power in the blood of the Lamb to deliver us, to redeem us, to set us free. So he fulfilled the Passover on the exact day. Now, we continue reading through Leviticus 23, right? And we come to the next appointed time. This is Leviticus 23, verses 9 and 10. Um, it should be on the screen here. There we go. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land which I am going to give you, and you reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. Now, this holiday, this appointed time, would take place uh, somewhere, it would take place the week of Passover, somewhere between two and six days after the Passover, depending uh, upon when the, uh, the weekly Sabbath would fall. So um, <clears throat> what happens here? Well, this is uh, a feast where uh, it's sort of like a symbolic gesture by the people. Before they begin to reap the entire barley harvest, before they begin to reap the entire barley harvest, what the priest will do is he will go out to the field, a special field right outside of Jerusalem, and he would reap the very best portion of that harvest. And then he would bring that best portion, the first fruits portion, into the temple complex, and he would begin to prepare it to be offered up as a grain offering to the Lord. So it would go through this hole, like it would be ground up like a powder, and then the priest at the, uh, on this holiday would bring it to the altar where they would offer it as a grain offering to the Lord. And it was a gesture to basically say to the Lord that, Lord, we give you the first fruits. And the first fruits represents the entire harvest. So by us giving you this, we now dedicate the rest to you as well. It's all yours because it is all represented in the first fruits. All right? Now, uh, when we think about this and we come to uh, the ministry of Jesus when he came the first time, right? We see that he became our Passover lamb on Passover. They took him down from that cross. They wrapped him up. They prepared him. They buried him. And he was in that tomb for three days. And on the third day, okay, lining up, lining up after the weekly Sabbath, as this holiday, the Feast of First Roots, was being uh, celebrated and observed in the, the temple in Jerusalem during that year that Jesus died on the cross, okay, just a few days later, what happens? Jesus becomes the first fruits of the resurrection. Uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15:20, "But now Christ, Messiah, has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep." Now why does Paul use that language? Why does he use that language? How does it line up? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's a joke too, yeah. Um, why does he use this language? 
because he's making a point for us. He's, he's very strongly letting us know that Jesus is that first fruits portion who represents the rest of the harvest. And when he rose from the dead uh, by the power of God and was accepted, it was like the divine stamp of approval from the Father on the ministry and the, and the person and the, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. And there's something different and unique about the resurrection of Jesus when compared with every other resurrection that we see in Scripture. What is it that's different? Anybody know? He never died again. That's what's different. There's many resurrections that we see in Scripture, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, right? Elijah, Elisha, they raised people from the dead. Jesus raised people from the dead. But eventually, those people died again. But with Jesus and his resurrection, it's different. He never died again. His resurrection is a resurrection to eternal life. And that, that is our hope. That is our inheritance. That is our promise. How? Why? Because he's the first fruits of that particular kind of resurrection. The resurrection to eternal life. And because he did it, we will join him in that same resurrection to eternal life. We are the harvest. He is the first fruits. Because he rose from the dead, we too will join him in that same resurrection to eternal life. It's the gift. Eternal life. And again, we notice, right, how things line up with the ministry of Jesus when he came the first time uh, and, and, and these particular appointed times of God. So now back to Leviticus 23. And we come to the third and final spring feast. And that is, in Hebrew, Shavuot. Shavuot is a Hebrew word, it just means weeks. Okay, like a, like a week, like the days of the week, right? Uh, it's, it's called weeks. Uh, Pentecost is, is from the Greek, it means 50. Okay, now why is it called that? Well, uh, when we read the text, Leviticus 23, verses 15 and 16, this is what it says. You shall also count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day when you brought in the sheaf of the wave offering. There shall be seven complete Sabbaths. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. So uh, 50 days, okay? For 50 days, the people were to uh, count from the Passover first fruits up to this next holiday, the Feast of Weeks, uh, the, the Shavuot or Pentecost. I'll just say Pentecost from here on out, so I don't, you know, we don't have to keep saying all of them. Now, what is, uh, what is the Feast of Pentecost all about? So when we look at how the Jewish people celebrate and observe the Feast of Pentecost, it goes back again to the book of Exodus. Uh, in Exodus, we see at the Passover, the people are set free by the blood of the Lamb. Pharaoh wakes up the next morning, tells Moses, get out of here. And then they leave, and they plunder the Egyptians on the way. And then God brings them to the shore of the Red Sea, uh, and, and they're hemmed in on every side. The Egyptian army's breathing down their neck, and then miraculously, the sea parts. They cross over on dry ground. They reach the other side safely. They watch as the sea envelops their former oppressors, and they see Egyptians washing up on the shore. It's kind of gruesome, right? But then they're free. They rejoice. And there they are, a free nation for the first time uh, in their existence. Even before they went to, to Egypt, they weren't a nation yet. They were tribes, right? But here they're a free nation. And then they begin to wander around the wilderness. And if you look in Exodus chapter 19, verse 1, you see that uh, it, it was the beginning of the third month. So it was the middle of the first month, and now they're at the beginning of the third month, and then there's a few more days, and you count all those days, it's about 50 days where God then brings them to the foot of Mount Sinai. And what does God do at Mount Sinai? What does he do at Sinai? The Ten Commandments, right? He does a lot. He does a lot at Sinai. Uh, he speaks, and the whole nation hears him, right? And they start freaking out. We can't, we can't handle this. Moses, you go and talk to him. 
Uh, he writes the Ten Commandments uh, with the finger of God, right? Uh, gives them to the people. He makes a covenant with Israel at Sinai. And it, the, the Jewish celebration and observance of Pentecost today is a celebration of that moment. It, it, it is believed that it lines up with those 50 days between coming out of Egypt and Passover and receiving the Ten Commandments, the Torah at Sinai. So if you were to uh, attend a, uh, uh, the 92nd Street Y, y and, and in, in the city uh, and their celebration of Shavuot, their celebration of Pentecost, it is a big celebration of the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. Now, when we look at the Torah and what God gave at Sinai, it's important for us to ask a question. What was the purpose of the Torah? What was the purpose of it, right? Well, it had a number of purposes, right? It came for sin, right? To, to, uh, like Paul says in Galatians, to point out our sin. Uh, the Torah, okay, the law, uh, the commandments were a moral code. It, 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 right and wrong is defined in the Torah, that's where God says, this is sin, this is not, right? It's a moral code, a moral guide. The Torah also, in the ancient world, right, it set Israel apart from all the other nations. No other nation on earth had anything like the Torah, like, like the law of God, okay? It was viewed, it was a good thing. It's a good thing. It set Israel apart. They were different from the nations. And then on top of that, the, the Torah equipped Israel to fulfill her mission in life as a nation. And what was Israel's mission in life as a nation? What was, she, what was she supposed to do? She was supposed to be a light to the nations, right? Another way to understand that, Israel was supposed to be evangelical. Israel was supposed to share the truth of the one true and living God, with all of her Gentile neighbors, right? And if we look at where God placed Israel in the world, the land of Israel, very important, right? Very strategic location, okay? Israel, you could see on the map there, right? About the size of New Jersey. Coincidence? <laughs> yes, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, so you could see uh, kind of to the left, you could see Jerusalem, you could see uh, the big letters Levant going up and down, right? That's Israel, all right? Israel is a very strategic location for God's people to fulfill her mission, to, to spread God's truth. Why? Because it sits at the crossroads of three continents. If you go to the east, you're in Asia, and technically Israel is considered part of Asia. If you go to the south, it's Africa. If you go to the north, you're in Europe. Right? And, and uh, Israel stands at, at the, the, the meeting point. Uh, Ezekiel puts it like this. Ezekiel 5.5 5 says that Jerusalem is the center of the world. And there were two ancient major trade routes that uh, passed directly through the land of Israel to connect these three continents. One of them was called the Way of the Sea, uh, which went from Alexandria in Egypt and Africa up along the Mediterranean coast into Asia Minor and Europe. It followed the coast. The other one was called the King's Highway. And it also would go from Egypt up through uh, the, the Jordan Valley in Israel and then up uh, toward Damascus and into Asia, into the east. So these ancient major trade routes, what would happen? Well, people from different nations would travel these roads. And as they traveled these roads and passed through the land of Israel, what were, what were they going to see? Well, if Israel was being faithful and living out God's commands, God's word, what would they see? They would see the just treatment of foreigners, right? They would see the, the proper treatment of women. The way, the, the way women were treated according to the Torah uh, was, was uh, far greater and more humane than any other country on the planet at that time. Uh, they would see um, uh, just weights and measures in their business dealings. And then if they went to Jerusalem and they saw the temple, they would see a temple to a God who is not an idol, right? 
to a God who, who is not fabricated out of stone or wood. And they would see a sacrificial system uh, at work that clearly showed uh, a sinful human being, a worshiper, who is tainted by sin, trying to draw close into the presence of a holy and set-apart God, the one true and living God. And the only way that that sinful worshiper can draw close to a holy God is through the shedding of innocent blood. Right? That is the gospel. It's the gospel. Uh, it points to, to the Messiah, to Jesus, and what He's done for us. So the intention... Right was for Israel to be a light to the nations and for these nations to pass through the land and encounter this. And then what would they want to do? They would want to forsake all other gods and worship this one true and living God. And we do see in the Old Testament some examples of this. Right? Uh, Rahab comes to mind. Uh, Ruth comes to mind. Uh, <clears throat> prominent figures. So uh, that, that, that is the idea. Okay, When, when it comes to uh, the Torah and Shavuot and Pentecost. All right, so with all of that uh, in the backdrop, now we come again to the New Testament. We come to the very same year that Jesus became our Passover Lamb on Passover. The very same year that Jesus became the first fruits of the resurrection on the Feast of First Fruits. And now, 50 days later, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> sorry, I'm good. 50 days later, what happens? Pentecost comes, and something major takes place. We read about it in Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Ah, forgive me, I'm a loud swallower. <clears throat> I have a complex about it. I'll tell, I'll tell you why, real quick, all right? So I was, I was speaking once, okay, and there was like this front row of probably like eight kids, and kids are brutally honest, right? And I took a sip, and this one kid goes, that was loud. <laughs> it's like, thank you. <laughs> um, all right, Acts chapter 2, okay? <clears throat> Before we get too, uh, too far off, uh, off the path here. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, talking about the, the disciples. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now we could pause there for a second, right? Now remember, what is on the minds of the worshipers here, the disciples and all the Jewish people who are in Jerusalem? What are they there to celebrate? What are they remembering? What are they, what's on their minds? What are they thinking about? Sinai. Right? And what happened at Sinai? Uh, when we read Exodus 19, Exodus 20, when God spoke to Israel, uh, what happened? This thick cloud enveloped the whole mountain, the top of the mountain. And there was flashes of lightning, there was thunder, right? These mighty elemental sounds. And, and what's being described here in Acts 2? It's, it's similar. This is Sinai language. A, a mighty rushing, a violent rushing wind. Uh, coming from heaven. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. All right. Now here is where we can actually look at some Jewish tradition. All right, Jewish tradition that developed uh, around the, uh, what took place at Sinai. Now, this is not Bible, what I'm about to show you. Okay? Very important that I say that. What I'm about to show you is tradition. It's oral tradition that developed in the Jewish world. Uh, and <clears throat> the next slide has it. So there are two rabbinic traditions about what took place when God spoke to Israel at Sinai. Uh, one tradition says that when God spoke, they heard, Israel heard God speaking, not just in their language, not just in Hebrew, but in 70 different languages. Okay? So tradition didn't really happen, as far as we know, but that's the tradition. It would have been on the minds of the disciples, would have been on the minds of the Jewish people there in Jerusalem to witness the events in Acts chapter 2. 
So they heard God speak in many languages. The other tradition says that they not, not only did they hear God's voice, but that they saw his voice, and his voice looked like sparks of fire. Okay? Like lightning. Sparks of fire coming and, and resting on each one of them. Coming forth from the mouth of God. So if we, with that in mind, we look at, <clears throat> at uh, again, Acts chapter 2 and what took place. It appears that God is using Sinai language and even traditions that developed to communicate to these disciples the magnitude of what was taking place. And what was taking place? Well, here, a, a, a major component of the new covenant promises that we see in the Old Testament is coming to pass. As the Holy Spirit is given to Israel. As the Holy Spirit is given to believers. Right? The, the Spirit was, was expected. It was longed for. All right? We see it in, uh, <clears throat> um, in, in Jeremiah 31, verse 33. Uh, God promised that he would write the Torah. When the new covenant comes, he would write the Torah, write the law. Where? Not on tablets of stone, but on hearts of flesh. Ezekiel talks about this. Ezekiel 36. He talks about the Holy Spirit being poured out and indwelling his people. This is what took place in Acts chapter 2. That, that aspect of the new covenant was being fulfilled. Where God was writing the law, not on tablets of stone, but on hearts of flesh. Circumcising our hearts. And when we look at the, the, the way that the Holy Spirit functions, and compare it with how the Torah was supposed to function, we see that the Holy Spirit does a far better job. Okay, not to denigrate the Torah or denigrate uh, the, the Word of God in any way. But no, it's just to recognize the greater reality of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Just as the Torah was a moral guide where we, it, we would be convicted uh, of our sins when we would read the Torah, so too the Holy Spirit functions this way. The Holy Spirit is a moral guide for us. He shepherds us, convicts us of our sin when we do wrong. What else? He makes us holy, right? We are set apart. We're different, okay? When we believe in Jesus as Messiah, when we are born again at that moment, we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God and we are a new creation. We are different. We're holy. That's what, that's what saint means, right? It comes from the Greek hagias. It's a holy one. Like, oh, I don't even feel comfortable saying that sometimes, but that is how God views us. And thankfully, it's nothing that I did. It's nothing that you did. It's purely Him. It's purely Him. So the Holy Spirit guides us, makes us holy, and equips us. Equips us, gives us gifts, right? The gifts of the Holy Spirit. We all have, you know, different gifts that are to be used for what? For the ministry, for the, 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 uh, the whole reason that we exist as a body, which is to spread the good news, to bring the good news. And, and um, praise God, it's not just confined to the land of Israel. It's, it's Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Okay? And this is, again, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 3. You are a letter of Messiah, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. But our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And one last thing that we can say about uh, Acts chapter 2 and comparing it with, with Sinai, we see the transformation in the disciples immediately, right? And we see the biggest transformation uh, in Peter, right? Peter, what did, what did he do? The same Peter who denied Jesus three times, but then was restored, right? And, and who after the death of Jesus, what did he do? He went back to the nets. He went back to the, to the boats in the Galilee, went back to his former life to be a fisherman, right? But then once he receives the Holy Spirit, we see the radical transformation in him. He stands up in Acts chapter 2 and he gives this beautiful apostolic sermon 
where he, he gives this mass appeal to all who are present there to believe in Jesus, to believe in this Messiah. And what happens as a result? The Spirit moves. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, it says, So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Now, why is that important? Well, when we compare it with what happened at Sinai, we see a reversal here. Because at Sinai, with the, the, uh, the golden calf incident, in Exodus 32, verse 28, when Moses comes back down, he's incensed by what he sees, and he gives a, a call, uh, anyone who's with the Lord, come to me. The Levites come, and they begin to slay the idolaters among the camp. And how many perished? Exodus 32, verse 28. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. So at Sinai, 3,000 fell. But again, when we come to the New Testament, when we see the fullness of these uh, appointed times uh, come to pass in and through the ministry of Jesus, the Messiah, we see 3,000 restored, 3,000 born again to new life, to eternal life. So all of that to say, uh, just to, to rehash, because uh, uh, I promised Pastor that we finished by 1.30, so... <laughs> That's a joke. Yeah, don't worry. <laughs> to close it out, right? When we look uh, at just these spring feasts, we see that God set the appointment. And when the time for the fullness came, he fulfilled it. Jesus became our Passover lamb on Passover. Jesus became the first fruits of the resurrection on first fruits. Jesus became, uh, Jesus poured out his Holy Spirit upon us, inside of us, on the exact day of Shavuot, all for a purpose. We are redeemed. This is our, we find our identity in these things. We are redeemed. We are forgiven. We are delivered. We live and operate now with the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, equipping us, empowering us, sending us out so that we can proclaim this good news message to a world that desperately needs it, to the Jew first and equally to the Gentile all looking ahead, knowing with great confidence, with full assurance, that death is not the end for us. Because he is the first fruits of the resurrection. We will join him in that resurrection to eternal life. That is our hope. That is our inheritance. That is what drives us. So we find our identity in these appointed times. And, this, and we, are, we are sent forth. And again, in our ministry with chosen people, this is, this is what, what motivates us. This is what drives us. This is, we, we have to come back to this as a reminder time and time and time again because uh, I want to share something with you. Jewish ministry is not easy. Uh, it's like, you know, if you think about uh, evangelism as like farming, right? Well, Jewish evangelism, Jewish ministry is like trying to plow concrete sometimes. And then as you plow the concrete and you're starting to see some soil where you can plant some seeds... Next thing you know, someone picks up a piece of cement and wants to throw it at you. you know? Not literally, it just feels that way sometimes. Um, but uh, again, this is what drives and motivates us. Now, everyone should have received one of these brochures. Okay, If you would, I'm going to ask if you would take it out. Before we close in prayer, I just want to uh, share, uh, share about this with you. If you don't have one, uh, maybe there's some extras in other bulletins laying around. All right, but if you have it, I'm just going to ask, take it out, okay? And then when you open it up like this, you'll see that there's a picture there of me and my wife, Joanna, and our two kids, and a short little bio about us. And I know what you're thinking, and you're right. I'm much better looking in person. <laughs> That's a joke, too, yeah. Now, if you open it all the way like this, all right, so open it all the way, you'll see that there's a section that says, Our Beginnings, Our Purpose, and Opportunities for You. So that's all about Chosen People Ministries. A uh, little bit about our, our, the background of the ministry. And to the far right, you'll see this white portion. All right, It's got lines on it for a name and address. This is perforated, so it tears off. So on the count of three, we'll take part in a very ancient Jewish tradition together. It's called the tearing of the slip. <laughs> so on three, we'll tear this off together. Ready? It's okay. One, two, three. Okay, very good. Now, the brochure part is for you to keep. All right, so stick it in your Bible. You can read it over. 
Uh, when you get home, you can hang our picture on your fridge as a reminder to pray for us. Uh, our website is on the back. Um, now, the white portion that we tore off, this is very important for us in our ministry. So I'm just going to ask, if you would, take out a pen or a pencil and start filling out your name, address, and email address if you have one. And by doing that, and then returning it to me before you leave, uh, we have a book table in the lobby there. You can drop it there. You can give it to me directly. You could give it to one of the pastors here. Uh, but by doing that and then turning it, turning it in, you'll then receive mine and my wife's prayer letter each month. So every month we'll send you our prayer letter, giving you updates on our ministry there in Brooklyn and specific prayer requests that we have about events coming up, about uh, uh, mission trips that we have coming up, uh, specific people that we're sharing with. Uh, so it's a, it's a wonderful way for us to stay in touch with you. Uh, and there's ways for you to partner with us in this ministry. And there's three ways that I like to point out about partnering with us in this ministry. One is by praying for us. So by committing to pray for us. We believe James when he wrote that the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Okay, We even believe it in the King James. Right? Um, that's a joke to you. Uh, but we, we covet your prayers. Because again, this, this is challenging. It's challenging times we live in. Uh, especially with considering what's happening in Israel right now. Uh, and not just in Israel. Uh, we, we have over 30 staff who are serving in Israel right now. Some have been called up into the Israeli Defense Forces. Some have had children called up uh, into the military, into service. Uh, but, uh, so we're very active in Israel. But on top of that, we have the just rise of anti-Semitism everywhere else, even, especially in New York. Uh, it's, it's all over the place. It's like every few days I see some kind of video on Twitter or, or whatever it is of someone tearing down the posters of the hostages or some kind of rally that turns violent. Even today, uh, we were talking. I, I, oh, by the way, I have two, uh, two of my coworkers here with me. Uh, I should, why don't you guys stand up? Yeah. Uh, so that's Chaim and Henry. So, Yeah. They're very dear brothers, Jewish believers in, the, in Jesus, and they're, they're newer on our staff, uh, and they're living in New York with us as well. So, um, uh, well, not with us, but they live in New York and um, serving with us. Uh, so we thought, I thought it was important to just bring them so that they could minister to the church as well. Uh, but even on our drive down here today, we, we saw that uh, there's a, uh, a, a planned uh, rally to close down the George Washington Bridge at three o'clock today. Uh, so it's, you know, th things like this, just a lot of it is um, a lot of anti-Semitism. So all that to say, we need your prayers. We need your prayers. We covet your prayers. So you could partner with us by praying for us, uh, by giving, by sowing into our ministry, or by getting involved. If you want to come to Israel with us, if you want to come to the city to participate in our summer uh, mission trip called Shalom New York. Uh, if you want to go to South Florida uh, and participate in our, in our mission trip down there in February, not a bad time to go. Uh, lots of opportunities for you to get involved. So uh, please take the time to fill this out so that we can stay in touch. And, uh, uh, and last thing I'll mention before I pray uh, is uh, please come see us in the, uh, in the lobby there. Uh, we have a book table with lots of resources available uh, resources that will uh, help you, uh, equip you to share the gospel with the Jewish people in your life, uh, or, or materials that will help you just dig deeper into the Jewish backgrounds of the faith, uh, and deeper into a lot of what we talked about this morning. So I'm going to pray uh, because I could just keep going and I don't want to do that to you. So let's pray and then I'll, I'll hand it over. Abba, Father, we thank you, Lord, and praise you for your goodness toward us, Lord for how gracious you are, Lord, for how generous you are, how merciful you are. God, we thank you for how you love us. We pray, Father, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Encourage us, Lord. Help us to chew on, these, uh, on, on your word, Lord, that we, that we feasted on this morning. We pray, God, that you would recall these things to our minds as we go uh, into the rest of our week. And help us, Lord, to be a light uh, to the world to testify uh, to the Jew first and equally to the Gentile, repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, God. We love you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. 
。阿门。You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10:30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by. Going to www.cccrossfields.org, where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact@cccrossfields.org. At Thanks for listening, and may God bless.